The passage that David read just a few minutes ago is one of the most famous in all of Scripture. If there were a greatest hits record of Bible verses, 1 Corinthians 13 would absolutely be among just a select few that you know would be on that album. And that's true even for people who never come to church. People who are not Christian know this passage as well as many Christians know it. Atheists know this passage. Why does everybody know 1 Corinthians 13? Where do we hear 1 Corinthians 13? Weddings. I was meeting with a couple recently whose wedding I'm going to officiate pretty soon, actually. And I asked them if they had thought about a reading for their ceremony, and they said, not that one that everybody else uses. You know the one that says love is patient, love is kind? There's a certain irony about the fact that this passage is used as weddings, and the irony is that Paul's not talking about married love. He's not addressing this passage to couples. He's not talking about romance. He's not talking about sexual attraction or flirtation. He's not talking about any of the things that most people are feeling when they get married. The love that he is talking about is what the Greeks called agape. And part of the problem is that the Greek language had four words for love, but in English we only have one. And this is a major limitation of the English language. I mean, think about this. We use the same word for our love of God that we use for our love of chocolate or the Phillies. I love God. I love the Phillies. I love chocolate. Maybe in that order. I don't know. Same word, much different connotations. We say, I love my child, but then we use the same word for our love of our spouse. But, of course, these loves are very different. The Greek language that Paul is using was a lot clearer in the fact that it had these very distinct words for different kinds of love, and I want to just go through them briefly with you. They had one that we should all recognize, philia, which is brotherly love, right? That's love between friends. They had a word called storge, which is specifically the love that a parent has for a child. And then they had a love called eros, which is romance or sexual love. Then they had a word that was very specific, and this is the one that we find in the Bible. It's agape. And so in John's gospel, for example, Jesus tells the disciples, this is how people know who you are if you agape one another not if you storge or eros or philia one another, but if you agape one another. And perhaps more importantly, in the first letter of John, we find the remarkable statement, God is love. I mean, for many of us, that is a very important part of the way we conceive of God, but do we know which kind of love we're even talking about? Because the writer of that letter could have said God is philia or God is storge or God is eros, but he didn't. He said God is Agape. And so if anybody asks you, how is it that God is love, you really should say it depends on the kind of love you're talking about. Because God is not love in the way that we often use the word in English, but God is love in the very specific thing that agape is. And so what I want to do in my sermon today is talk about agape, what it is, how we often confuse it with other kinds of love and what agape actually looks like in practice because that's really where the rubber meets the road. And I'd like to start with a question, why is it a problem that we only have one word for love in the, diff in the English language 
Everybody knows that we need love. Everybody acknowledges that love is the central thing that we should all be really doing with our lives. John Lennon famously saying, all you need is love. Okay, but what kind of love are we talking about? Because what I find in our culture, the, the most frequent problem that I encounter is that when people are talking about love, they're usually talking about eros. But they really should be talking about agape. What people do is they put romantic love, eros, on this great pedestal, and they think that that is what they should be centering their lives around. But the truth is that agape is really what we should be after. There have been a number of interesting studies on the myth of romantic love in our culture. And I think this is something that's so familiar to us that we probably don't even question us. We won't even question it because by the time we are children, we're already getting the message that romance is the thing that we should all be looking for. You know, I watch a lot of movies with my kids. How many Disney movies are about a prince and a princess falling in love? Pretty much all of them, right? What can save Snow White from death? Romantic love from Prince Charming. What rescues Rapunzel's lover from death? Her tears, an expression of her romantic love. He awakens, they kiss, and presumably they live happily ever after, no problems. And of course, we see the same thing in popular music. The vast majority of lyrics, I encourage you over the next week, just turn on the radio and count how many popular songs are about popular or about romantic love. And I would be shocked if more than a few of them aren't. They all follow the same plot line, these, mu- these movies and these songs. Here's the basic plot line. Life is hard, but if you can just find romance, everything will work itself out. And what you may not know is that it wasn't always like this. So sociologists have written about a trend in the 20th century that involves two simultaneous changes. Number one, romantic love becomes more and more the center of popular culture. At the very same time, religious faith declined. The obvious implication is that romance has taken the place of faith. No longer do people yearn to be close to God. No longer do they put their desires and dreams and problems and doubts on God. Now they put all of these things on human beings who, not being God, are not able to handle them. And the results are clear. Rates of marital satisfaction have all dropped significantly. Divorce rates have skyrocketed, which is kind of ironic because our culture says that the more free we are from religious constraints, the happier we should be, right? But it turns out that this isn't true. I want to read you a quote from a report by the American Families of Faith Project. They explored this very question, what has happened in our culture as romantic love has become more and more the focus and religious faith has declined. This is what they write. The Western fixation on romantic love has created a crushing burden for people. It engenders a powerful myth regarding love, courtship, and marriage that a fallible human partner can not only share our passions but also sate our existential yearnings. Couples today expect much more from marriage than it can ever realistically deliver. 
Let's talk about what this looks like. You get into a romantic relationship. At first, it's wonderful. It's kind of like one of those songs. The butterflies in the stomach, the passion, the desire. It's sort of like you become one person. It's exciting. It's scary. It's fun. But here's the point that I think Paul would want us to know. It's not love. Call it romance. Call it passion. Call it eros. That's what it is. But it's the opposite precisely the opposite of what Paul calls agape love. Let's just state a few examples here. I mean, we all know that romantic love is selfish. We desire the other person, right? We want the other person. It's a selfish drive to have this eros in our lives. But agape love, says Paul, does not insist on its own way. We all know that romance is impatient, Why haven't they responded to my text message? Do they not like me anymore? But agape love, writes Paul, is patient and kind. It bears all things. It endures all things. Most couples begin to understand this only at that moment when the romance fades, which of course is is inevitable. I mean, we can't live our lives in a constant state of the intoxication of falling in love. But even after the romance fades, a lot of couples continue to put unrealistic expectations on one another. After all, they were taught that once they met Prince Charming, they would live happily ever after, and therefore they naturally presume that their partner will be a kind of magical caregiver. Their partner will know their needs without even needing For you to express them, they will read your minds and they will come running to you to give you the support that you crave, just like in the movies. But not only that, they will be your affirmation, they will be your source of confidence, they will essentially be your God. When you are down, you will look to them to pick you up, hoping that their affection for you will be the thing that makes you feel alive. And I'm wondering if this is hitting close to home for any of us. I mean, I think it should because, honestly, we have all kind of been lied to. We have all been told that what we need most in life is romance, when what we actually most need in life, what we're desperate for, is agape. If you don't believe me, let's do a little experiment. Let's take the lyrics of some popular songs about love. But I want you to do something for me. Instead of thinking about a romantic partner... Imagine that these lyrics describe God. And I think what you'll find is that these songs, if they were about God, they would be hymns. They would be true. Right? Here's Dean Martin. You're nobody till somebody loves you. You're nobody till somebody cares. So find yourself somebody to love. Now, if that were about God, that would be a beautiful song, wouldn't it? You're no one unless God loves you. I mean, that's theologically pretty accurate. But if this song is about another human being, this is the most twisted and damaging message I've ever heard in my life. You're nobody until you find somebody out there that will affirm, affirm you? I mean, that's crazy. All right, here's Billie Holiday. This is really, this is even worse. Billie Holiday sang, all of me. Why not take all of me? Can't you see that I'm no good without you? Take my arms. I want to lose them. 
Take my lips, I'll never use them. Take all, of, I know we have this song in our heads now, all of me. Now, if that were a heartfelt surrender to God, I think that would be a beautiful song. I would love to sing that hymn in church. But if that is about another person, that is the most codependent thing I've ever heard. Take all of me? I mean, no, have some boundaries. The psychologist M. Scott Peck says that romantic relationships eventually reach a crisis point. At some point, people begin to realize that their partners are not God. They can't read your mind. They can't heal your wounds. They can't meet your existential yearnings. And in fact, I mean, they're honestly, they have problems of their own, don't they? They're not perfect people. They're just as sinful and insecure as you are. So here's what M. Scott Peck says. It is at this crisis point that you have two choices. You can either leave and you can pursue romantic salvation with another person and go through it all over again. Or you can stay and you can try to learn what real love is. Agape love. Do you want to know what real love is? Agape love is not a feeling. It's a choice. That's what real love is. It's not an emotion at all. It's an action. It's a verb. It's not a noun. We think that desire is love, right? That's what our culture tells us. Love is wanting someone else. And agape love is the exact opposite. Agape love is when you choose to to do the right thing, get this, even when you don't desire it. Isn't that interesting? It's when you choose to help someone even if you're angry with them. It's when you pursue peace even when you want to pursue revenge. That is agape love. It is precisely the opposite of eros. Now here's the good news. Although you can't control eros because it's like being intoxicated, you can control agape. You can choose to help people even if you don't feel like it. And this is the key that unlocks so many confusing things about the Bible. For example, Christ said, love your enemies. If if true love is a feeling, I mean, this is not even possible, is it? We can't manufacture affectionate feelings for people who have hurt us, can we? On the other hand, if love is a choice, we can choose to be kind to people even when we don't feel like it. That's agape love. If true love is a feeling, then our marriages are hopeless because there will be days when the feelings are just not there. On the other hand, if love is a choice, it means we can stay committed and we can try to work it out. It means when you say, I love you, you're not saying, I desire you. You're saying, I've made a choice to be committed to you. And I choose to pursue peace instead of conflict. If love is a feeling, then this congregation has no hope because there will be days when you don't want to come to church. There will be times when you feel hurt and misunderstood here. There will be times when you don't feel connected to God. On the other hand, if love is a choice, you can choose to come anyway and be connected to something larger than yourself and wait patiently for God to show up, trusting that he always does. Paul wrote these words, in fact, to a congregation that really had no philia. 
I mean, they had no brotherly love. They hated each other. They hurt each other. Paul said to them, you are called to something greater. In fact, you're called to the greatest thing, which really is agape. If I speak in the tongues of humans and of angels, but I do not have agape, all I am is a noisy gong or a clanging cymbal. I'm just making sounds, but I'm not actually helping anybody. If I have prophetic powers and understand all mysteries and all knowledge, and if I have so much faith that I can move mountains, but I don't have agape, I'm nothing. And that means that the choice to do right by one another is the greatest thing of all. So how is it that God is this choice? How is God agape? It's because God does things. Love is a choice and God chooses. Love is an action and God acts. Do you think that Jesus felt like being tortured and murdered on a cross? Was that his desire? The Gospels tell us how frightened he was, how he asked God, pleaded with God to take this cup away from him, and yet he said, your will be done. I choose to do your will, O Father, even though I do not want to. I am willing to sacrifice my own life to help people who have never even heard about me. He may as well have said, I love, because that's what real love is. And the truth is that every day, every single one of us are presented with choices that really have very little to do with how we feel. And I think that's the great insight. It sounds so simple, but in our culture, I think it's very profound. Just because you have a feeling doesn't mean that you have to act on it. I mean, I tell my kids this all the time. But I'm really the one who needs to hear it. Just because I lack desire doesn't mean it's not the right thing to do. If you tell somebody that you love them, but you don't do things and take actions to make them feel loved... How can you actually say that you love them? You see, faith doesn't have to be so sentimental. Faith has a very practical dimension. Do the right thing, and you will feel close to God as God is already close to you. Let's end in prayer. God, it is hard to fathom the depth of love that made Christ give his very life for us. Grant us the strength and the humility to follow him wherever he leads, knowing that you will never lead us down a wrong path. Amen.